You're listening to audio from Citizens Church, located in Plano, Texas. For more information about this ministry or to give to this ministry, please visit citizenschurch.com. Good morning, church. How are you doing? Great. Turn with me in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 3. We're going to be in verses 18 through 19, as Jill just read for us. Uh, welcome all of those of you who are here, especially if maybe, uh, you know, we've been, I think this is our fourth Sunday to be open, and it's possible that maybe this is your first time to come in person. Uh, welcome back. I, I pray that, that you immediately were met uh, just with the uh, unique grace that God has for the people of God when they gather together in person. I know that, that it, has not, uh, it has not gotten old yet, even for me, just the, the joy it is to be able to gather after having not been able to for uh, so long. And if you are uh, home watching online, uh, we miss you. We are grateful that you're able to still uh, participate and worship with us. And, and the reality is, even though you might not be uh, physically present with us, God is uh, present with you and has uh, a word for you this morning, encouragement for you, uh, church. And again, I look forward to the day that we can be together again. Colossians uh, 3, 18 and 19 is obviously about uh, marriage. There are those passages of Scripture that uh, you can hear read, and you're like, I wonder, wonder what that's about. I wonder, you know, kind of what he's hoping to, to speak on, what the topic is. And then there's those that just jump right off the page, and this is one of those. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and don't be harsh with them. Uh, and we're going to walk through verses 18 and 19 this morning, but what I want to do first is just a short recap reminder of where we've been in the letter and to see the turn that the letter is making. And it's a really challenging one. And here's what I mean by that. Uh, Where we are in the letter is chapter three. And chapter three begins to talk about change, that, that you, Christian, as a follower of Jesus, as you follow Jesus, you will be changed to look like Jesus. And so there's two truths that we said somewhat ad nauseum for a few weeks in a row, and I want to go back to. And the first truth is this, that the love of Jesus, the salvation that is available to you in Jesus, it meets you right where you are, uh, in your mess, in your brokenness. It does not require of you to change, and then God will love you. Change is not a prerequisite for love. God loves you and meets you right where you are, in your mess, in your brokenness. And praise God that that's true. We'd have no hope if that wasn't true. Meets us where we are, doesn't leave us where we are. And then what it will begin to do is it'll begin to meet us in that brokenness and in that mess and begin to change us that we might look more like Jesus. And that's what this has been about. That's what this conversation has been about. Uh, And it's been very specific in what it looks like but really quiet up to this point on application. Here's what I mean by that. If you were with us, hopefully this will, this will sound familiar. Uh, he will talk humility and what it looks like to look like Jesus is humility or meekness, but he doesn't have a, any particular circumstance in mind for that. He'll say, bear with. And what he means is bear with everyone, but he doesn't speak to a specific relationship. He talks about forgiveness, but he didn't mention in forgiveness uh, for you to have some sort of circumstance in mind. So it's been specific in what it looks like to look like Jesus, but really vague in application until now. And where does he turn his attention to? The home. He's talking about change to look like Jesus, and that change is going to begin... And that change, friends, hear me, that change is going to be measured by the change that happens to you in the home and the change that is observable to those around you in the home, which is really challenging because here's what that means. That means 
who you are at home is truly who you are. As one commentator put it, one of my favorite New Testament commentators, his name's N.T. Wright, he said this, the home is the place, for better or worse, where one is truly oneself. The home is the place, for better or worse, where one is truly oneself. Now, I'm not trying to contradict myself here. What I don't mean is that's who you are in Christ, and I don't mean that's what defines you, right? Positionally, uh, how God sees you is he sees you in and through who you are in Christ, But there is a person that you are that Jesus wants to change. And there is a place where you are in your life that Jesus wants to begin working with you to bring you from that place to where he wants you. And here's what the Bible is telling us, is that change begins with who you are in the home. Um, The distance between who Jesus wants to make you and who you are now is measured by who you are to those closest to you because those closest to you have the clearest eyes on you. They, They get, is this not true? Those that you spend the most time with, you're in the closest proximity with, those that you're in relationship, whether it's a marriage relationship, a parent relationship, a roommate relationship, they get the unfiltered version of you whether you want them to or not. And what the Bible's going to say is that's the version of you that God wants to begin bringing change. The reason he mentions application and he's saying change to look like Jesus is gonna start in the home because that is so often the messiest parts of us. So look, if at work, if at work, you're thoughtful and impressive and patient and winsome and creative, but at home you're checked out, At home, you try and escape. At home, you're apathetic. At home, you're cynical. Guess where God wants to start changing you? The you that comes out of you at home. If around friends, you see occasionally, you're patient and you extend grace and you're not easily offended, but at home, you're harsh and at home, you're unsafe and at home, you're reckless with your words. At home, you're easily offended. At home, you're consistently irritable. Guess who God wants to change? The you who you are at home. We are uh, presenting two elder candidates to you at the end of service, Michael Bleeker and Kevin Evans. We'll talk more about them uh, after the sermon and the songs. Uh, But why we're presenting them to you is it's part of our elder process, the process of us bringing on new elders, and it's informed by Scripture because according to Scripture, uh, elders are to be well thought of by outsiders. And one of the ways that we know to test that is to present them before the church for a period of review and ask of you, if there's any reason you know that these men should not be elders in the church of God, please let us know. Now, we're pretty sure that's not the case. We're pretty sure, we're not pretty sure, we're very sure that these men are qualified, but if, if, if we bring them up here and you look at Bleeker and you're like, man, that guy stole my car two years ago. We need to know about that, right? Because that's going to factor into how we move forward in a lot of ways. Uh, but before asking that question of you, before getting to this point in the process of bringing them before you, we ask that question of their family and ask that question of their wives. Are these men at home who they say they are? Not are they perfect, none of us are. Not, uh, is, there, are, is their life free of anger or free of lust? We're not asking that question. We're just saying, is there an honesty to them at home? Is there a faithfulness to them at home? Because if who they are at home is different than who they are outside of the home, there is a huge gap in their sanctification. Or I'll say it this way, if who they are at home uh, is different than who they are outside of the home, then there are deeper places in their lives for the change of Jesus to travel. More important places in their lives for the change of Jesus to travel. Now, all of that 
um, can be really defeating, right? And all of that can be really discouraging because the worst of us comes out at home. The, the parts of us that we're most ashamed of comes out at home. The places that hold the most guilt and regret, that's true for me. That's 100% true for me. And so what we would rather do and what would be easier to do is to disassociate ourselves from who we are at home uh, and, to, uh, and to only offer to others the, the easy version of us that's easy to offer, the filtered version of us that's easy to offer, and then uh, cover over who we are at home or escape who we are at home but ignore who we are at home because this is hard work. It's really hard work. Believing that the change that Jesus wants to bring in my life is going to start with the version of me that is the most exposed and the version of me that is the most unfiltered, that's hard work. But you and I, you and I believe in a God who loves us so much that when he begins to change us, he wants to start with the messiest parts of us because he has better for us. Do you believe that? I, I do. Most of the time, I do. And so the rest of chapter 3 is going gonna, is gonna to take this change conversation. It's going to shine a light into the home. It's going to talk marriage. It's going to talk parenting. It's going to talk uh, work. And that's where we'll be the next few weeks. He starts this morning with marriage. Look at me at verse 18 again. Chapter 3 of Colossians, 18 and 19. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. That's real straightforward, so we don't even have to talk about it. Hus- just kidding. Husbands... Love your wives and do not be harsh with them. The conversation about change has moved into the home and it's going to speak to the husband and wife about what a marriage between two changed people looks like. And look, you know this, hopefully you know this. There's just more to say about marriage than we have time in the next 20 minutes that we have, 40 maybe. Um, And so what I want to do is I just want to draw out two truths from these short verses that I hope helps us continue the conversation about change, uh, and maybe for some of us, start the conversation. Here are the two truths. Marriage is about God. It's not about necessarily the two people. It's not about me. It's not about my spouse. Marriage is about God, and we'll unpack that. But marriage, and this maybe be, might be the language that's foreign, marriage is also about power, meaning in marriage, there is a unique God-given, God-designed power that a spouse has in the life of their spouse. There's a unique power that you have as a husband in the life of your wife that no one else has. And there's a unique power, wife, that you have in the life of your husband that that no one else has. And, And so I know the word power is not in either verse, but the idea of submission, the command to love, the command to not be harsh, it's all about relational power that you have, that both spouses have, and how to use it. I think so often, yes, this verse is about uh, gender roles and gender distinction in marriage, and we'll talk about that. Uh, And and yes, it's about God's design, but so often what we try to make this verse answer and verses like it is who has the power in the marriage or who has more of the power in the marriage. And it's just the wrong question. Both do. What this verse wants to help us answer and what this verse wants to help us see is not that it's stripping a wife of her power or stripping a husband of his power, but telling them how a marriage that is about Jesus, telling them about how when Jesus is the center of a marriage, it changes the way that we see the power we have, changes the way that we use the power we have so that we might honor God and we might love one another well. Let me just speak personally. In two weeks, uh, in two weeks, Carrie and I, my wife, we will celebrate 
12 years of marriage, next, uh, two Sundays from now. We met in uh, June of 2005 through a mutual friend at a party at his house in New Braunfels, Texas. She walks in. I finally build up the courage to go and talk to her. We talked for about an hour or so, and I was just immediately love-struck, immediately love-struck. And uh, she had to leave, and so I walked her outside. We said goodbye, nice to meet you. And I thought, for sure, this is the last time I will ever see this woman. And then what gave me a little bit of hope is before she left, she turned back and she came and she gave me a hug. I was like, okay. But um, she left a lot of space between us in the hug, you know, and so it was like I couldn't tell if it was a courtesy hug or if she was just like leaving room for the spirit because she loved Jesus or something like that. And so as she, I kid you not, as she walked away, I prayed. As I'm watching her get in her car, I prayed this prayer to God, God, please let that woman have low standards. <laughs> because, God, if she doesn't have low standards, I've got no shot with her. And thank God she did. Um, we uh, ended up going on our first date a few months later uh, in College Station. She was at Texas A&M at the time. Okay. <laughs> I love that you love your college. Um, but it's been real quiet in here the last few weeks. So if you can whoop for your college, you can amen your preacher, okay? Uh, two reasons. One, the Bible is more important. Two, I will not break your heart every football season, okay? <laughs> it's ridiculous. So our first date, we're in College Station, and I uh, take her to super fancy restaurant called Chili's where love is born, and we talked... Hopes, relationship, boundaries, dreams, dated two and a half years, uh, engaged for six months, and then married July 26, 2008. In our 12 years together, we've lived in Dallas, we've lived in San Angelo, we lived in Corinth, we've lived in McKinney. Right now we live in Plano. Uh, we've had three kids together. We have been members of three different churches together. And if, uh, you know, if you and I had time and if we had relational proximity, I, I could tell you about high seasons in our marriage and I could tell you about really low seasons in our marriage and I could tell you about uh, trips we'll never forget and I'll tell you about fights we wish we never had and, and the ways that we've changed and loved ones that we have lost and what is uh, what is as true as anything else about our story and what is as true as anything else about our relational dynamic together is for probably 14 years, for sure 12 or 12 married years together, no one, no one has had more power in my life than she has. And no one has had more power in her life than I have. Do you understand what I mean by this? I, by power, I just mean the power that flows through the currency of words and the power that flows through the currency of preference and passions and how you fight together and how you disagree together. And it's like, look, power to build up and power to wound, uh, power to, 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 to reorient life, to change life, power to follow passions together. And our lives have been inextricably changed by the way that we have used the power that we have because of the relationship that we share in our lives. And that, friends, that is true for every marriage. It's true for every marriage. That the person that you are married to, they can make a decision that changes your life for the rest of your life. What other relationship is that true about? A few, but not many, and not in the same way. They can speak words to you, for better or worse, that you remember for the rest of your life. Marriage is about God, 
and marriage is about power. And the rest of our time together, what I want to do is I want to unpack the relationship between the two. Because when marriage is about God, hear me, when marriage is about God, the power that we have will be used for flourishing in the marriage and through the marriage. When marriage is about God, two people oriented around God, the power that they have that is unlike any other power in any other relationship is going to be used for flourishing in each other's lives to point us towards God. This is how God designed it. If you'll turn with me to Genesis chapter 2, we're going to read verses 18 through 25, and we're going to see why God, what problem was marriage trying to solve? What kind of power did God give to husband and wife and how to use it? In verse 18 of Genesis chapter 2, if you're not there, it'll be on the screen behind me. It says this, Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. So this is the problem. And God's going to solve this problem with marriage. I will make him a helper fit for him. Remember that word helper. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever this man called every creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on the man while he slept. God took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then he said, this is Adam singing a song. It's poetry. This is at last bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother, and the two shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked, and they were not ashamed. Okay, so Genesis 1, we just read from Genesis 2. In Genesis 1, you get what's called the creation mandate. It's the purpose Uh, for which God made man and woman. And it goes like this, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and take dominion. So God has uh, pre-wired his good world with all of this hidden potential. And he pre-wired his world with this hidden potential and he puts man and woman in that world so that they would discover that hidden potential in having children, in cooking, in building, in creating, in starting families that would become cities and cities that would become uh, nations and all of that, right? And so God gives Adam and Eve the glorious job and the glorious purpose of discovering the hidden potential in God's good creation and then to cultivate that hidden potential so that all of it would more fully celebrate God's glory. That's why he put them there. And so that is the mandate that's given to Adam and Eve together in chapter one. Well, when you get to chapter two, what chapter two does is it takes a few steps back in the story. It tells the creation story from a different vantage point, and that's how Moses put it together. Uh, But he backs the story up a bit, and it's just Adam, and it's Adam all by himself trying to fulfill God's purpose. So it's Adam all by himself trying to be fruitful and multiply, and it's Adam all by himself trying to cultivate God's new world. And if you read all of chapter 2, you see there are uh, rivers to tame, and there are animals to name, and there are, uh, there's food to harvest, and God watches Adam, sees Adam trying to fulfill the purpose that God gave him, and he sees a problem, and he names that problem. It is not good for man to be alone, and marriage is going to solve that problem. So what does it mean? What does it mean that it's not good for him to be alone? If God's with him, uh, if sin is not in the world, what is not good about his aloneness? What problem is marriage trying to solve? And friends, 
Hear me. How you and I answer that question is going to dramatically change how we see the power that we have in our marriages. It's going to dramatically change what we believe the purpose of marriage is in the cultural answer. The, the problem that love and romance is trying to solve, uh, the cultural answer, the Disney story, the story that surrounds us is that Adam is lonely and what he needs is romance. He's lonely and he needs a soulmate. He needs someone who has power to satisfy his needs and to satisfy his loneliness and to complete him. And he's got power to do the same thing for her. And in that story, if that's how we understand the purpose and the meaning of marriage, what it makes marriage about is it makes marriage about something done for me. And it makes marriage about um, each other in some ways, but really about me. And so we describe it as something I fall into is what love is, or primarily something that I feel. And here's what it does. It takes two people and it puts them face to face with one another. And that's the orientation of marriage in that story, that there's two people and they are face to face oriented around one another and they are brought together and they are held together by the feeling that they share for one another. And it is rigged for failure. It's completely rigged for failure. That, that this uh, face-to-face relationship means that we're going to use the power that we have mostly contra- uh, transactionally. And so I'm going to give and I'm going to expect that I get about as much as I give in return. And it's rigged for failure because that turns the power that God gave us for a completely different purpose and it makes it a power struggle. And as you grow older together and as you hurt one another and as the brokenness in each of our lives is exposed, as we fail one another, then that power turns to control or that power turns to worship or that power turns to codependency or that power turns to manipulation and feelings change and life gets hard. And eventually what happens, friends, eventually someone turns their face from the other. And we have all kinds of ways of describing and explaining and justifying that turn. That turn sounds like, well, we just grew apart. Or that turn sounds like they changed. Or that turn sounds like we fell out of love. Or that turn sounds like I began to feel what I used to feel for them for someone else. And so now I'm setting my face onto someone who's not my spouse. This is not what I thought it would be. And listen, friends, marriage is not about two people face to face. Marriage is not about two people who are expected to use their power as the end all be all for everything that that individual needs. Marriage is about God and it's about two people not face to face, but two people shoulder to shoulder facing God. That's how it unfolds in this story. It says it's not good for man to be alone. And then what does God give Adam? Pay attention to what he doesn't give him. He doesn't give him a God who alone can satisfy him. He already has one. He doesn't give him a savior who can restore him. He doesn't need one yet. He will, but not yet. He gives him a helper. The Hebrew word means sustainer. What power do they have? He gives 
him someone who has power, who brings power into the relationship that they could face God together, that they could follow God together and use their power together to fulfill and pursue God's purposes. So Adam is given someone who is equal to him that will do the work with him in a way that he could not do the work on his own. Adam needs Eve and Eve needs Adam not, hear me, not to give each other purpose. Adam needs Eve and Eve needs Adam so that together they can fulfill the purpose already given to them by God. Would you see this with me, friends? Marriage is, and marriage always has been, so much less about what marriage does for you and so much more about what marriage does through you and does through you together what marriage does in, in, in two people shoulder to shoulder facing God, using their relationship, leveraging their relationship, using their power that it might together pursue God's purposes, make much of God, glorify, celebrate God for the good of one another and the good of God's world. Now, hear me. That's not without romance, and it's not without intimacy. I'm not trying to uh, de-romanticize marriage. I love a good love story. And, and I'm trying here to, to help us see that those things are placed in their right order and that God would place romance in its right order in a world that has placed that right at the very center. Adam uh, is romantic towards Eve in this story. He sings her a song. He, he has written her poetry. Uh, he delights in her. He is in love with her. Th- think about this guy. He had just got done surveying all the animals And he was probably really bummed out by all this friend options, right? And then Eve comes along. He sees her, and he just erupts in a song. He sings his vows to her, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. This one is mine, uh, and, 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 and she belongs to me, and I belong to her. And he sings that. That's why the comment is, a man shall leave his father and mother and, and hold fast to his wife. They shall become one flesh. The man and his wife were naked and not ashamed. There's romance, and there's poetry, and there's intimacy, and there's promise. It's, it's got all of the stuff of the greatest love stories, right? But what has brought them together is not that. And what's going to keep them together is not that. Look, the, the 15-year-old early, eager uh, emotion and romance that marked the dating years for Carrie and I. It was wonderful. It's changed over time. It's taken on different forms over time. Uh, It's deeper now than it's been. But hear me, friends, and I know those of you who've been married longer than I have know this, it's not sustained us. It has not sustained us. God gave them a marriage completely in love, but he gave them a marriage that was about him, that they would use the power in each other's life to help each other pursue God and his purposes. And when marriage is about God, marriage, uh, marriages that are about God will use the power that they have in the relationship for flourishing and for one another's flourishing in God's world. That's true in the New Testament. Let me make a huge leap in the story. We get to Jesus, and we're in the New Testament, and, and, and a lot of time has passed, sin has entered into the world, but when the New Testament talks about marriage, it still gives us this picture, two people, shoulder to shoulder, facing God, using the power that they've been given to fulfill his purpose, and that is to love like Jesus and to represent Jesus, the new model relationship for marriage, those of us who are on this side of the resurrection, the new model relationship is not Adam and Eve, the new model relationship is Jesus and his church. According to Ephesians 5, according to Revelation 19, so use your power 
Husband, use your power, wife, to be a gospel picture to your spouse and to the world. And that takes us back to Colossians, and we'll unpack that. Before we do, I need to pause, and I am just so pastorally compelled to say a few things. Marriage is not the only way, and I'd even say it like this, marriage is not the primary way to participate in God's story. And so we've been talking for 20 minutes now about marriage and marriage and God's creative design, and what it could easily do is it could easily make many of you in the room feel on the outside looking in because many of you are single and that singleness has, has a number of different forms. Some of you are single and you're wanting to marry and it just hasn't happened. Uh, some you're on the other side of a marriage that fell apart and you're single and you're single on the other side of a ton of hurt and a ton of wounds. Uh, some you're on the other side of a marriage that ended at a bedside in a hospital. So there's a lot of grief. There's a lot of loss. Some of you are spiritual widows. You married someone who has renounced faith in Christ, or you married someone that never claimed Christ. Some of you are single for other reasons. And, and what I know in just relationships I have with a few of you is that often it can feel in church like the married people get all the attention, or the married people have a place of honor in God's story, and you're on the outside looking in. And that could especially feel like that on a Sunday like today. The institution, hear me, the institution that marks the mission of God is not marriage. The institution that marks the mission of God is the church, which is a spiritual family. Jesus did not stand at an altar, make promises to a woman, have a bunch of physical children, and rescue the world by being a family man. Jesus climbed a mountain, hung on a cross, laid his life down on the altar of the cross, kept promises to God, and rescued the world by inviting lost men and women to be his brothers and sisters that God might have multitudes of children in his spiritual family. So the Genesis 1 command of be fruitful and multiply has become the Matthew 28 command of go and make disciples, which single and married alike can do and can play a part in a meaningful way. To be single following Jesus is to be just as a part and just as important in the family of God as married following Jesus. Let me take a step further because I know for many of you, there is a small degree or a large degree of suffering associated with your singleness. And that level of suffering means that you have a story and part of the power that you have in fulfilling God's purposes is leaning into the unique power associated with your story that you might declare how your story belongs to God's story and what God is doing in and through your story. Here's what I mean. Maybe you have a story of loss and you're single on the other side of a story of loss. And there's pain in your life, but what you know and what God would have you know is that that story finds a home in the story of a God who will one day wipe away every tear from every eye. And you have unique power to tell that story because of what you've been through. And your experience postures you to use that power to declare things about God in ways about God and truths about God that are going to be clearer from your voice than other people's. And we need to hear your story from you. Uh, maybe you have a story of heartache and relational failure, even maybe a story of abuse. You find yourself single on the other side of vows that were broken in egregious ways. But your story belongs to the story of a God who one day rights every wrong 
and the story of God who doesn't wait for the future day to begin healing your wounds, but can heal your wounds right now and is healing your wounds right now. And that gives you a story to tell about that God and unique power inside that story. Maybe you have a story, hear me. Maybe you have a story of righteous celibacy and singleness because you have desires that are outside of God's design for marriage and loving and honoring Jesus means a life of singleness for you. And that courageous obedience is seen and adored by God. And you have a unique place in that story. Your story belongs to the story of our single celibate savior who never dated, never married, never had sex and lived such a life that the world would never be the same. And you have a unique connection to the heart of Jesus and a powerful story to tell that reflects his story. Maybe you have a story of a relationship that fell apart in your own hands, damage that you did, things that you're responsible for. And if you could do it all over again, you would. And if you only knew then what you know now, and there's brokenness at your own hands that surrounds your life. But even in that failure, that story belongs to the story of a God who restores the years that the locusts have eaten can take even that brokenness and begin to put back together a beautiful picture of mercy and grace and love. And he is not done with you, friend. You have not forfeited your right to be part of his plans. And so, friends, marriage might be the topic today from this passage, but it's not the only story that God tells. And God has given you a story, and your story matters in his story. And the unique power you have is connected to the story that he is writing in your life that maybe you would not have written for yourself, but you can trust that the hand that authors that story holds you and loves you, and is for you, and he is not done with you. If marriage is about God, and in marriage we have unique power, what we should expect Colossians 18 and 19 to tell us is how to use that power to point to God, namely how to use that power to point to Jesus. And he starts, and this is where we'll end in about 15 minutes, he starts by acknowledging different roles and the different ways that a wife is going to use that power versus a husband using that power. And he says it like this, Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. What does that mean? Well, it doesn't mean you're not equal. It doesn't mean you don't have a voice. It doesn't mean that he makes every decision. It doesn't mean that he wins every argument. And my sister, if you are in a marriage where this word has turned into a weapon against you to silence you, or shame you, or overpower you, your church wants to walk with you, with both of you. Husband, friend, if you are using this word in anger to control conflict, you've already lost, brother. You've already lost. And so for anyone, like you're, I want you to know your church would be delighted to be a loving voice in your life and in your marriage, especially if in reading through this, there's just a tremendous amount of complexity about how to even move forward together. For anyone who feels stuck, who feels afraid, who feels at a loss as to how to move forward in some of these things, because you know your reality is very complex and very broken and very fragile, we would love to help. Not that we have all the answers, but we do at least know the answer that you don't need to walk in that alone. And it could be as easy as you sending me during or after the sermon an email to jamin at citizenschurch.com and just saying, can you help us? You're raising your hand asking for help. Because what I don't want to do is I don't want to pretend that this 
sermon doesn't fall on complex situations and relationships that one sermon on marriage is not just going to make go away. Wives, submit to your husbands. It doesn't diminish you in the marriage. So what does it mean? Two things. In first century Roman culture, um, a woman could legally remain in her father's home and a woman could legally remain under her father's care and authority even after she's married. That had to feel really bad for the husbands in the room, right? So at the very least, it's an appeal to leave father and mother, which is an appeal to not elevate any earthly relationship over your marriage. Now, this holds true for both spouses, right? The job, the kids, your parents do not come before your spouse. They don't come before your marriage. There is relational, emotional priority that's shared among spouses, and Paul had to remind this church of that reality, but it also speaks to a unique role that a wife plays in the marriage, a unique way of loving, a unique way of using power that is tied to Jesus. You see it. Submit as is fitting in the Lord. It means there is something, wives, it means there is something of Jesus that you are uniquely called to show to your husband and to the world. Jesus was submissive to the Father. It did not make him less God or less valuable, but he showed, according to Philippians 2, a humble willingness to honor the Father. And the way, wives, that you love your husband, the way that you use power in your marriage is to be reminiscent of the way Jesus models humility and meekness and deference. It's not submission as your husband deserves it. It's submission as is fitting in the Lord. So there's a unique way that the power that you have in your words and the power that you have in your presence and the power that you have as as you create something together with your husband, there's a unique way that that power brings about flourishing in and through you to your husband, to the world as you model Jesus' humility in your marriage. And look, I have less answers, believe me, as to how this plays out in decisions There is no one marriage that's the same. There just is no one marriage that's the same. And so I have more questions than answers about about what this looks like in different dynamics. But but friends, can can I tell you what I know? It's not. It's not being the expert on your husband's failures. It's not putting the weight of things in your life that only Jesus can heal onto your husband to fix. It's not using words that emasculate or tear down. You are a refreshing presence to him in the marriage. You use your power to be a refreshing presence to him, to honor him, to build him up, to point him to Jesus. Husbands, love your wives and don't be harsh with them. That word love is the Greek word agape and it's only used one other time in this letter and it is used to describe God's love for his people. So it's a sacrificial kind of love. It's a divine kind of love. Husband, you use the power that you have in your marriage to love your wife the way that God loves you. What a sober command. Uh, to use the power you have to love your wife in a way that she sees you on earth, in you on earth, the love that God has for her in heaven. So delight in her, sacrifice for her. And then it says, don't do this. Don't be harsh with her. That word harsh means embitter. Don't act in a way that could cause resentment. And there are a lot of ways that you could cause resentment. You can cause resentment by being critical. You can cause resentment by being mean. You can cause resentment by being uh, unsafe and angry. But you can also embitter by being distant. You can embitter through anger. You can also embitter through apathy and neglect. So you can be dismissive. So loving her and not being harsh 
is not husbands. It's not just the absence of the things that would hurt her, like angry words, but it's also the presence of things that show her love. It's the presence of things that show her that you delight in her like God delights in her. So time and patience and listening and encouragement. Would you hear this, husbands? It means I reserve the best of what I have for her. I don't expend all of my emotion and all of my energy and all of my thought and all of my creativity and all of my passion at work or in my hobby and then offer whatever's left to my wife. That's not the way that you have been loved by God, friend. Brother, that's not the way that God has loved you. He knows you, every part of you, and his love for you amounted to taking on flesh, walking the earth, laying down his life. And in that moment of love, we got the best of his courage, and we got the best of his patience, and we got the best of his obedience, and we got the best of his mercy and the best of his grace to love you, to love us. And so at the very least, husband, loving your wife means give your best to her. The best of your listening and the best of your patience and the best of your presence and the best of your empathy and the best of your creativity and the best of your passion and the best of your strength to her, not what's left of you when you've offered your best to everyone and everything else. Is your, friends, is your marriage about God? I'm asking you, husbands, wives, is your marriage about God? How do you know? by how you use the power that you have in each other's lives. According to this passage, that's the mark of a marriage that's about God. And this kind of use of power, using power to submit, honor, respect as a reflection of Jesus to your husband, using power to love, sacrifice as a reflection of Jesus to your wife, that's only possible if your marriage is about God. If it's about me, if it's face-to-face, then power becomes control, power becomes manipulation, power becomes keeping record of wrong. It will be used to worship a spouse and make them God, or it will be used to control a spouse as if I am God. But the picture here, just like it's always been, is a husband and a wife, shoulder-to-shoulder, facing God, using their power to present Jesus to one another and to the world. And if marriage is about God then power will come out as flourishing for one another. And let me offer a starting place for that as we close. There is a unique way that you, husband, you, wife, can use the power that you have today. Who you are at home is who you are. At least, who you are at home is the you that Jesus wants to start changing. And that's kind of the reality that overlays over all that we've said that we are to change to look like Jesus. And you know who has eyes into that? Your spouse, your husband, your wife. As we rattled off what a wife should look like and what a husband should look like, you know who has the best picture of where you've fallen short in that? Your spouse. That's why some of you got nudged while I was preaching. Not only that, but if you back up to what it's been the past several weeks, as we've talked meekness, as we've talked humility, as we've talked not being angry, as we've talked uh, where you should forgive, as we've talked what it means to bear with, right? The marriage gives us a front row seat to all of the change that our spouse needs. The marriage will give us as a spouse about our husband, about our wife, it will give us the clearest eyes to see 
what Jesus is trying to put back together, the mess that Jesus is trying to repair. And you know what that means? That gives you power. That gives you power. Unique, special power in their life, knowing their weaknesses, knowing their faults, knowing how far they have to go to look like Jesus. And you can use that power to criticize. You could use that power as ammo for your argument, or you could fight for a marriage that's about God. And fight for a marriage and consider that God gave you eyes to see where your spouse needs Jesus. Not to be critical of their faults or to shame them where they need change, but to go together with them to Jesus. The two of you shoulder to shoulder, coming to Jesus, we need change. And the marriage that is about God can have those conversations with both honesty and safety. They can have those conversations about how maybe I'm using power in a way that doesn't point to God or maybe how I've used my power against you in ways that make you feel small or overlooked. And we can have those conversations with honesty, knowing that we're not going to weaponize our weaknesses against one another, but together we will take those weaknesses to Jesus. And I will use my power to be a champion of the change that God wants to bring in Carrie's life as someone who needs change just as much. And she will use her power to be a champion of where I need more of Jesus and need to reflect more of Jesus. And if that's what our marriage is about, if that's a starting place for what we want God to do, it puts us shoulder to shoulder facing God using the power we have for flourishing for one another and flourishing in the world. Marriage is about God and the glorious gift in marriage is that I get someone who pursues him with me and uses their power like me to help me look like Jesus, which is the greatest aim of life. Father, we love you. We thank you for your mercy. We thank you for your grace. I just so often feel, but especially around passages like these, God, feel the limits of not knowing what you know. Feel the, the frailty and feel the, the burden, God, of stories unknown to me, conversations had on the way to church unknown to me. Ways in which a marriage maybe is on its last leg, unknown to me. You see all of it. You know all of it. Nothing hidden from you. And so God, would you use your word in the lives of your people would you use your word specifically in the lives of the husband and wife, God, to bring healing, to bring clarity, to bring closeness, to bring intimacy? That, God, maybe the conversation needs to be at some point today or when, when they can get away this week and be together, maybe the conversation needs to be, we've got to turn. We've got to face God. We've been back to back or we've been... We've been fumbling through this together, missing the point, and we need to face God together. Maybe the conversation needs to be, I want to fight to be able to have conversations together about our weaknesses, about where God wants to bring change, and I want to fight for those conversations to be honest and safe because we both need to move together towards Jesus. Or Lord, maybe it's, it's the one in the room who falls in that story that's a story of singleness 
and a story of singleness by way of suffering. And God, if you would just in your kindness and mercy make so tangible and palpable the reality that in this moment you see them, you know them, you have great plans to use them in the story that you're writing and inviting them into. If, if we sum it all up together, God, we need you. We need Jesus. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you've made a way for us to change, to be loved right where we are and to not stay there. And we thank you, God, that you have given the institution of marriage, you have given the partner for those who are married to walk that road together with love and mercy and forgiveness and grace. We love you. Amen.